Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, the capital asset pricing model, as is usual, we'll go through the uh, markets for a little bit here, and then we'll get down to the uh, topic of the day. Now, as far as that topic goes, it is has math in it, but the math is not, it looks a little complicated, but it boils down to just plugging numbers in to a few places and going from there. But first, as always, we'll have a look at how the markets are doing here. Yahoo Finance. Okay, as you can see, it was just up and down. There was no clear direction the market uh, wanted to take. The Federal Reserve bumped interest rates up a quarter of a basis point. Now, there were some market participants who thought that they were going to push it up a half, uh, a, a, uh, half of a percent, uh, 50 basis points, but they didn't. And they also signaled that they're nearing the end of their uh, uh, interest rate increases, which uh, is good news for the market, but the market really didn't get too excited about it. It just sort of flopped around. The Dow was down about a third of a percent. S&P was down about 0.2%, and the NASDAQ was barely down at all. So the market's in a kind of a wait-and-see area. Crude is kind of pushing up a little bit, but it's not in any spectacular rise, although it seems to have a definite trend upward right now. Gold had a spike real uh, just a while ago. The gold bugs went cuckoo for some reason, and I don't know why it was. Silver was up a lot, and I'm not sure where that was coming from either, but there seemed to be a, quite a bit of money pouring into those two, uh, two things. Now, here on the 10-year bond, the yields went down. Uh, so that would be the result of expectations that the Fed was going to raise interest rates a lot, and they didn't. So some of that expectation drained out in the yields on ten, the 10-year benchmark <coughs> slid to some extent. Now, taking you on the journey that I've begun recently with the um, currencies, interestingly, the dollar, uh, the euro and dollar, the uh, dollar has been appreciating against the euro. It capped up a little bit there and then toppled over, but still there is a strong upside appreciation of the dollar due to interest rates going up. That makes the value of a dollar more against other currencies, relatively speaking, and there may be some other factors involved. But it got as high. It looks like it went through a uh, top above 108. In other words, a euro, uh, the dollar became... Uh, got as high as, whoa, 109 against the euro. So there was a lot of appreciation, but then it backed off that, and now it's back down to some uh, more tamer level. 
but there's no question about it, the dollar is strong. The dollar has been appreciating against the euro. And if you look at the other markets, you can see the same thing uh, with the uh, pound, uh, the, grid, uh, the Great Britain pound. Had there, it, the dollar surged and then it backed down and then it spiked again. It sort of followed the same pattern as the euro did as far as that big spike and then it backed down a little bit. But again, the dollar is appreciating against other currencies. We raised our interest rates, not much, but we raised them and that gives the market some reason to make dollars more valuable. Go. Just to clarify, um, for like the euro and USD, for instance, the one is in the numerator, right? And then it takes 1.08. Dollars. As a matter of fact, let me show you something here. And uh, just to get you into that kind of a mood, um, I should get that bookmark back in here. Um, one of the go-to places that we use is OANDA here. Now, OANDA will allow you to see anything euro. Let me do a euro. So one euro has, it takes a dollar seven point four seven four cents to buy a euro. Now, if you look here, it was as low as a dollar five, no, a dollar five or something like that. And it's been appreciating, but it's been bouncing around, but there's been a tendency upward in the strength of the dollar against the euro. This is called a direct quote when the foreign currency is the one. And so that helps us so that if this number, the USD, goes up, the dollar is appreciating. If the USD goes down, the dollar is depreciating. That is, uh, again, this is a direct quote. Now you can do it the other way, but it gets awfully confusing. Now interestingly, if you look over here on Yahoo Finance, uh, uh, let me do uh, Great Britain first. There, that's a direct quote. As you can see, the dollar, it's taking more and more dollars to buy a pound, a pound sterling. So uh, that dollar is appreciating against those currencies, that currency. Now, interestingly enough, Yahoo does the yen, the Japanese yen, backwards. That's called an indirect quote, and it just drives me crazy. I know why they do it, but when that one goes down, that means it's appreciating, the dollar's appreciating. Why do they do this one backwards? It's simply because the yen is such a small value. It takes a hundred, more than 100 yen to, for a dollar. So they put them backwards on Yahoo. If you look at it this way, let me take the yen here, the Japanese yen. There you go. That is a direct quote. But as you can see, it, those are small numbers of uh, dollars. It takes 0.758 cents to buy a yen. So it's kind of, so Yahoo does the yen backwards so that the numbers are the inverse. But as you can see, when you put them the right way, the dollar has been appreciating against yen since about the end of the first, beginning of the second week of this current month. Now, one that I like to show folks is the ruble. Well, wait a minute, is that right? 
that's a direct quote. Yeah, the foreign currency is one. But it's been falling. Why has the ruble been, the, the, the dollar has been depreciating against the ruble? Well, weren't we supposed to be wrecking the Russian economy, making their, the ruble cheaper and cheaper and all that kind of stuff, ruining their economy? Why is the dollar not strengthening against the ruble? In fact, the ruble is strengthening against the dollar, and it has been. What's that all about? Well, we're putting all these sanctions on Russia, and that's really going to break their backs. Well, you see, what happened was when those sanctions came in, the dollar did appreciate against the ruble. But then you make the ruble cheap against the dollar, which is what it was there. That makes Russian exports cheap in other countries. Who doesn't give a rat's ass about our sanctions? China. China simply, those cheap Russian exports, they just started buying them up, repackaging them, and selling them to the world. And hence, the ruble got stronger and stronger. The dollar weakened against the ruble. And that, if any of you wonder why everyone said that Russia was going to run out of Ukraine and all you read about is Russia just keeps pouring missiles in there and pouring troops in there, it's because they have a safety valve. China is making sure that they have plenty of foreign exchange so that they can keep buying their missiles and paying lousy wages and fielding artillery and everything else. They can last for years this way. So if you thought that we had a good friend in China and in a few other countries, you are wrong. They were taking advantage of the cheap ruble. They started importing the stuff from Russia and they started flowing money back into Russia so that Russia could just keep pouring military hardware and human bodies into Ukraine. And they'll keep doing it because they've got a market. And that's just how it works. Uh, as the old first rule of warfare goes, never assume an, op an opponent's intentions, only his capabilities. And this is a great example of that. Let me show you one more here. There was an article written by some very uh, people who wanted to be very intelligent that said the dollar is on the way out and it's going to be replaced as a world's currency by the Indian rupee. <coughs> I seriously doubt it. There's a value how much you would pay in dollars for a rupee. It's about 1.2 cents. Sure, that's going to be the new currency of the 21st century. Look for yourselves. Don't trust no one, except me. I'm, I'm incredibly trustworthy. But when you see things like, the Indian rupee is on the verge of becoming the world's currency. Oh, horse crap. No, it's not. Get real. So anyway, you can look at these numbers for yourself and how a little, allow a little bit <coughs> of knowledge will help you interpret data for yourself intelligently. Then you, don't, then you don't even have to believe me anymore. But you should still anyway because I'm awesome. Uh, or not, no. Okay, calculator. 
I, I, you're going to see the calculator is going to be used for some stupid Petrix math. But before I do that, I've, this whole thing, this whole week is about risk. And I've, remember I said risk is the number and, and with a variation in outcomes. But there are many aspects to risk that we have to consider. What causes risk for one thing? Well, one of the <coughs> major causes of risk, potential for lots of different outcomes, is lack of information. The less information you have, the more risk you would take not knowing that you have risks. A good example of that is uh, someone like uh, you, sir. At your age, you still drive like a blind trout. When you get to my age, 80 years old, no, not quite that bad. Yeah, you're going, boy, that's dangerous over there. I see a squirrel. See, as you get older, you have more experiential knowledge. So that's something that's important, too, is that when we say trust the experts, that's kind of, if they've been doing this for a long, long time, they probably have experiences in all the different things that can go wrong. And I learned that the hard way all the time, that you could get blindsided because you hadn't seen that before, and suddenly there it is. Now, there, is another, there are other sources of risk, too. And... Um, I'm going to have you, madam, do something right here for me, okay? See this bottle? of This is a bottle, a spray bottle of water. I should like you to shoot me right here. Like, actually? Yeah, just squirt it. Yeah, Fire! Ah! Ew. See the pattern? Right? Very few outcomes outside of the tie. Now, madam, fire again. Look at this, all over me. Think about that distance as time. When there is a very short interval of time, it's, there's very few outcomes outside of a very tight pattern. But as time increases, there's more chance that outlying events can occur. This is that maturity premium I was talking about in earlier, uh, remember with the risk premium in an interest rate? As time expands, there are more possible outcomes for interest rates. So that creates risk to the lender, more possible ups and downs. The same is true. You, sir, are going to walk out of this classroom and you'll probably live until tomorrow. But over a period of 40 years, you'll die. Well, maybe, okay, quit it, it's 70 years, okay? Something like that, I don't know. But you see, there are more possibilities. If you walk outside of this classroom, there is really almost no chance that an asteroid is going to hit you. But if you walk outside for many years every day, one day you're going to say, boy, it certainly is shadowy here. Okay? That's that whole idea of time creating more possibilities. On the upside, you could be a billionaire. But you could also be so poor that you can't afford the last two letters of poor. You're just po. Okay? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying here is that time does create that kind of a situation, more risk. Another one, I'm going to show you something here. And this one I'm going to have to do. Okay. 
I'm looking around for someone who will be willing to be attacked by chickens. <laughs> oh, I thought he was going to do it. Okay. Uh, yeah. You. I'm going to attack you. Okay, what is this? Chicken. It's a, not just a chicken, it's a miniature chicken. This is, in this bag, the miniature chicken army. They want a human sacrifice. And here it comes, they attack. Here, close your eyes. That was the reserve troops. Now, were you hurt? Well, I was emotionally. <laughs> I actually got a complaint one quarter. It demeaned me. He, he hit me with chickens. Boy, did I have some explaining to do. Uh, anyway, look. The frequency was very high, but the severity was low. Now, let's talk about this again. What if instead of a bunch of miniature chickens, a bunch of miniature chickens, suddenly, out of nowhere, you are attacked by a dragon. And it's not just any dragon. This is a fire-breathing dragon. Watch. This. Uh, damn it. I can't get my fire breathing. How am I supposed to be a good fire breathing dragon if I can't get my fire going? Uh, wait. A fire breathing dragon. How am I supposed to do this if I can't get my dragon to fire breathe? Okay. Uh, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, ow, God. Have you ever seen a fire-breathing dragon before now? Frequency low. But that fire-breathing dragon can kick your ass. Okay? I mean, all you have to do is watch that Game of Thrones. No, I don't watch it. Yeah, sure, porn. But anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? Frequency low, severity high. Quick, take her to the ER. What happened here? She got hit by a fire-breathing dragon. Crank scores? Yes. Oh, God. Do you understand frequency and severity? They are part of the mix of analyzing risk. The uh, World Trade Center, before you were born, which scares me that it's, it's gotten that far in the past, the, uh, we had an attack by a bunch of uh, terrorists, <coughs> and they took down the world, those two towers. They were beautiful towers. They were just like the jewels of New York. And um, the thing was, though, insurance. What is the probability that a tower of the scale and design of those would be knocked down by a terrorist attack? Extraordinarily low. So, of course, when there's two, there's no way that could happen. So you insure one, whichever one gets knocked down, that would be, but they knock down two. So the 
the frequency was almost unimaginably low, but the severity of it was unimaginably high. Originally, the insurance uh, provider said, no, you should insure one tower, so we'll pay for one. And then it went back and forth, and they said, well, the two towers are actually one tower connected structurally underground. And so th th there was that. But another example of this would be, for example, and I've mentioned this one before, we sit on a, near a fault line called the New Madrid Fault Line. That thing, it's been 200 years or more since that, that fault broke and caused earthquakes. But it was spectacular how horrible it was. And it wasn't just one, it just kept causing one major earthquake after another over a period of many weeks. And it was so violent that it threw the waters of the Mississippi back north, and then the, the Mississippi floods came with the tidal wave when the water came back down south, flooding farmlands and wiping out all kinds of people, buildings, and all of that. But only every couple hundred years. And the early explorers had learned that the Native Americans of the region had talked about one before that, about 300 years before that, before we were even around. So this was a recurring event, but it has such low frequency. Who would insure for a frequency on something like that? But a severity level that, I mean, if that happens now, it is not going to be a pretty sight. That's the same idea. Frequency low, severity insane on things like that. It's like, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned, one night I was driving down Ohio and this young man, he was hitchhiking and I picked him up and he was so grateful. He said, you know, no one will pick me up. They think I'm a serial killer or something. I said, what's the chance that there are two serial killers in the same car? <laughs> Kid wanted off at the next exit. <laughs> but he didn't get off. <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, so there you go. This is the, the context of risk that I'm talking about. Now I'm going to take it around to um, something a little bit, also seemingly abstract at first, but it is coming toward a hugely important principle in finance. It's a principle of the universe, in fact. But I start out with this. Uh, you, madam, you decide that you want to start running. You want to become the fastest runner in the world. So you start every morning at 4 a.m. You turn on the Rocky music, blah, 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 blah. And you go out there and you're running. <laughs> at first you can't make, you know, you made it to the end of the block before, you know, the, someone's dog came out and started peeing on you uh, because you were dying. No, but you got better and better, faster, a mile, nine minutes, a mile, eight, seven, six. But there's a point where you can't get any faster. As a matter of fact, you start looking up online. No one has ever run faster than three uh, mile uh, in three minutes and 50 seconds or something like that. It can't be done. There's a limit to how much you can do. You, sir, decide that you're going to become, uh, do a weightlifter. You're, you're going to become lift weights, okay? Dude, do you even lift? Okay, okay. But you get up there, 120 pounds, 180 pounds, you get up to 300 
pounds, and then you try for a 310, and all you do is feel the grit and pop of hernias. Okay? There's a limit, no matter how much you try. You decided that you wanted to have the fastest car, your car, you wanted to tune that up till that thing was as fast as it could be. You got it up to 160, 164, 165. But you, no matter what you did, you could not get it past without putting rockets on it. Okay, that would change the technology. But the point there being, again, a limit. Now, I'm going to take you, show you something. Um, this, I mean, we've known about this for, uh, well, probably centuries or something like that. But uh, and I, 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 I can assure you that once I tell you the name of what I show, of what I'm demonstrating here. You'll go, go on Google's images and you'll see just dozens and dozens of these pictures. Researchers, uh, people writing their dissertations or master's theses have repeated this over and over again just to confirm that this really is true. So if I were to take uh, return to a stock or a portfolio on the vertical axis, and I was to take the risk of that, this measured by sigma, the standard deviation, on the horizontal axis. If I were to do it like that, okay, well, let's find some low risk portfolios. And a few stocks on their own, making a portfolio, some bonds and stocks, two stock portfolios, five stock, 50 stock, 20 stock. And you just keep plotting what the actual empirical data is showing us about the relationship between the how much risk the portfolio had measured by the variance and then the standard deviation against how much you made on the portfolio. And you just keep doing this for all kinds of single stock and multiple stock portfolios. And something begins to emerge. No matter how much data you collect, and this is actually pretty easy to simulate portfolios and what they return and how much risk they had, something begins to show up. You have this packing of stocks, risk and return portfolios and stocks, but there's this white space and you never see ever anything above a certain boundary. Now in engineering and physics and chemistry and astronomy, we call this an envelope. And we see it in all sorts of places all through the universe. In the running of a human, there is a performance envelope in how much you can get out of an engine. 
in astronomy how large a star can be. We see stars of all kinds of sizes, from brown dwarfs on through to regular dwarfs like our, dwarfs like our sun, on up through these mega giant, but after that, there is no size that a star can be. We see it in um, <coughs> chemistry. No matter how, if you're making an explosive, no matter how pure you make the inputs, there's only a certain amount of exothermic calories that will come out of that mixture of chemicals. It's true in all, all kinds of places. These performance envelopes are everywhere. And in stock portfolios, the same thing is true. No matter what portfolio or what stock or what couple of stocks you buy, there is a place where for a given level of risk, you will not get past an ex a certain return. It just won't happen. And most of the action with stocks happens well down inside of this performance envelope. We have a name for this envelope. It's called the frontier of efficient investments. The frontier of efficient investments. And like I said, you can type in Google that term and hit the images and you'll see pictures of uh, graphs from data that show this over and over again. This perform, we just, that's just how it is. The, in other words, the physics of the universe is whispering to us. You can't go past this. <coughs> okay. So there's the first thing. Now, this next thing is, well, the boundary there, we can find, now, in, if you take enough math, you can actually get the equation of an envelope, the equation of the envelope itself. It, it reveals itself. And if we do that with the frontier of efficient investments, we find that there is no portfolio that we can create practically that is actually on the frontier. We have portfolios that are near the frontier, but not on it. Then the question is, okay, and this came up, oh, decades ago, well, what's the frontier? What does that mean? What does it represent? That, that infinite series of points on that curve there, how do you interpret it? Well, we, it's the world portfolios. I mean, at different levels of risk, leveraging and all that, those are the world portfolios. We can't get to them, get a world portfolio. You just can't buy all the stocks in the world. Even if you could, it would just be impossible to manage it. Interestingly though, if you take a course maybe from me in investments, we can do little tricks where we can take portfolios that are close to the boundary and if you take maybe three of those and you create a super portfolio from those three or four portfolios, you can get darn close to this boundary. A uh, good example would be take the 
a portfolio, a, like an ETF of the Dow. And then you've got it also, with more money, you take an ETF of the S&P 500. And with the rest of your money, you take an ETF in the NASDAQ. And so you have the super portfolio of those three portfolios. And that will inch you awfully close to the frontier, the, the theoretical, math, the mathematical place it happens. Okay, well, there's, this is the first part of it. So in other words, the physics of the problem tell us what we can do and what we can't do. Now, physics has a lot of places where we get informed about what is and is not feasible. And like, for example, a good example is the speed of light. We cannot exceed. We cannot reach the speed of light. We can get very close and we get little tiny bits of matter that we can get really close, but we can't hit the speed of light. So there, in other words, there's a limit to how fast we can travel across the universe. But we know that there is a way. There is a way to jump it. We mathematically know it, we're actually beginning to do it now in very tiny amounts in, in chambers with what are called Alcubierre drives and a couple of other designs. Are you going to see them? Probably in 50 years. Engineering is going to be a bear on those. But anyway, so is there a way that we could beat this? Well, actually, we know that there is a portfolio that is well outside of the frontier. We actually know one. You buy a pile of risk-free treasury bills, they have a standard deviation of zero, and they earn the risk-free rate. That's outside, of the, that's outside of the frontier. We see one. There it is, right there. So is there a way we could leverage that? Yeah. Suppose that I could get a world portfolio or something really close to the world portfolio. Then if I combine treasury bills with a certain percentage of treasury bills and the rest in the world portfolio, maybe 25% of it would be the world portfolio, or I'm sorry, 75% would be the world portfolio, uh, portfolio and the rest would be the risk-free rate. I can combine those two portfolios to run back and forth along this line. Well, what's this out here? That would be where I borrowed at a very low rate and bought more of the world portfolio, leveraging it. But any way you cut it, we know practically that there is a line which we call the capital market line. That along the line itself, it jumps the frontier. Why am I wasting time on this? It's actually kind of, it's worthwhile. I do caution you though. There is the capital market line, and then there's another line called the securities market line. Why they ever figured out to call these what they did when it's actually backwards, I don't know, but that's what it is. So this capital market line is a line that runs from the risk-free rate 
tangent to the frontier of efficient investments. All you, in other words, practically speaking, you could just buy, let's say you had $100, buy $25 worth of treasury bills and $75 worth of the spider, and you'd be running, you wouldn't be on the capital market line, but you'd be running outside of the frontier. Or if you said, okay, what if I have $100 and I can borrow at a very, very low, cheap, uh, rich people's interest rate that much again, then I could run that side of the line as far as I wanted. In other words, leverage your investment in the world portfolio. Now, is anyone going to do that? Probably not, but that gives us the clue. Now, let's turn this around. And this is where the math looks weird, but it is actually ends up being nothing but the equation of a line. That's all it is. Okay. This sigma. That's really not doing us any good. If you look at that, that sigma is definitely, these portfolios, almost all of them are inefficient. We need a measure that will say that if you hold nothing but treasury bills, the value of the measure would be zero and you would earn the risk-free rate. And then another point on this line, if you will, you could earn the expected return to the market portfolio. And we will just call that a 1.00, just as a scaling mechanism. So if I drew this line, the expected return to a stock or to a portfolio on the vertical axis, and this measure of risk, beta, then we have a point zero R sub F, a beta of zero will give us the risk-free rate, and we measure the expected return to the world portfolio as 1.00, and that gives us the expected return to the market portfolio up here. Now, in practice, we would get numbers for these, and I'll show you how here in a second. But then, two, two points make a line, That would be the line. We have a name for this one. As a matter of fact, this is called the securities market line. The securities market line. So you tell me the beta of a stock and I can tell you its expected return. This is called, now, I used to actually derive it. It's a high school linear algebra. The equation of a line from knowing two points on it. <coughs> I don't do it anymore. This is called the capital asset pricing model. And if you did the 
high school algebra, the equation of a line from two points. If you remember those dark days, you find the slope is y, 2 minus y1 over x2 minus x1 and all that. And I'll rearrange it to make it a little bit more financy. But the expected return to a stock, this is this equation of this line right here, is going to be the risk-free rate, the y-intercept, and then plus the slope times the expected return to the market portfolio minus the risk-free rate. That is the capital asset pricing model. One of the actual goals of this course. And if you're thinking of getting a new TAT, you can't go wrong with getting this on your ribs. Seriously. I actually met a, met a guy who had it tattooed on his upper shoulder. God, well, but okay. Interestingly enough, this was designed, it's such a, it's not like some giant PhD level physics equation. And there have been all kinds of attacks on it over the years, better ideas of how the expected return to a stock can, war, can be calculated. But it has stood for, my God, uh, like 80, 70 years now, and it has never been knocked out. It's, even though it is not perfect, it sure as heck does describe expected return as a function of beta, expected return to the market portfolio, and the risk-free rate. Now, let me point this out. Let me uh, emphasize this in practice. Uh, by the way, one warning. For God's sake, and I ask this as a multiple-choice question on a quiz and or an exam. And by the way, we'll have a quiz a week from Monday. A week from Monday. So be surprised because it's a surprise quiz, okay? But notice that the capital asset pricing model is graphed by what we call the securities market line. The capital market line is the primitive raw thing over there. Don't get them confused. The graphical representation of the capital asset pricing model is A, the capital market line, B, the conga line, C, the uh, securities market line. Make sure you know cap M is graphed as what we call the securities market line. I think they go through this in the book too, but they just kind of dismiss it. Yeah, this one's called this, this one's called this. I just want to warn you that it can confuse you. Now, what does this mean? This, the thing that we, well, let me show you in practice. What is the expected return To a well-diversified portfolio with a beta of 1.25. Now, before I answer that, I do want to tell you there's one term inside here. You see this expected return to the market minus the risk-free rate. We have a special name for that. It's called the market premium over risk-free. 
the market premium over risk-free. The way you interpret that market premium over risk-free is how much additional you make by taking the risk of the market instead of just buying T-bills or risk-free stuff. Think about it this way. Your market premium would be how much you expect to make going to college versus what you could have made just getting a job out of high school. And that's it. It's the extra juice for taking risk. You can put your money into T-bills forever. You take no risk. But if you go and jump to the market, then you have risk. Now, the, the thing, though, is here. So we're going to go after the expected return to the portfolio. We don't know that with stock. The next thing is that what's the beta? Well, we got that. 1.25, that was given to us. But these two, the risk-free rate and the expected return to the market. Well, how do you calculate those? Well, actually, we look them up. And I've talked about this, I've mentioned this before. The risk-free rate, your best bet for the risk-free rate is just find out the current rate on a one-year T-bill. Watch. Google. I should have these bookmarks, but every time I put them in, they somehow disappear. <coughs> well, the current yield cur yield on a one-year T-bill, we use a one-year, well, there's some people who use something else, but a one-year T-bill is currently pushing at 4.68%. Okay, so we'll use 4.68. In other words, we use the Treasury bill as a proxy for our SBF. 4.68%. Now, this one right here, what's the expected return to the market? Now, I don't want to be too facetious about this, but in a way, your guess is as good as mine. Here's how we get it, usually. There are services that take a survey of leading industry and academic finance professionals. And they have each of them give what they think that the next year's return to the world portfolio would be. Like for example, I am, I have, I'm actually one of the participants in one of these. And there are hundreds of these groups that they ask all of us twice a year, what is your estimate of the expected return to the market? And uh, most of these groups come in very close to one another. Some of the groups are always kind of like on the outlying side because they have uh, unusual thinkers in them. But right now, we'll put this at 10.5%. Now, I'm not sure. If you go into Standard Poor's Global Net Advantage, you'll find S&P has its own survey group. And they're certainly not going to ask me to be a part of that one. But they're usually pretty darn good at this. Pretty, you know, pretty solid. And then if you type in on Google, 
expected return to the market portfolio. Of course, you're going to get a lot of you know, lectures on what it means. Go find some data. Some, sometimes they'll report what some group is saying. But one way or the other, it's not something you have to calculate. I'll give it to you. And all you have to do is say, okay, well, this is going to be, this is kind of fun. All I have to do here, uh, well, I'll just put it over here with apologies to everyone. I'll say, okay, the expected return to the market portfolio, rather, and we got all that capitalized. Okay, then the expected return to this stock is going to be equal to the risk-free rate, 1.68%, the y-intercept, plus the beta, 1.25 times the expected return to the market portfolio, 10.50, minus the 4.68%. I mean, it's just a calculator exercise is all it is, really. And I mean, it's not a hard one either. One thing I want to show you here. Let me do that market premium over risk-free, just real quick, because there's a point that I want to make. The market premium over risk-free, I would do the 10.5 minus the 4.68. And you can use percentages. You don't don't bother to turn them into decimals because everything's a percent in it. So, and it's just basic arithmetic. Okay, five point eight two percent. So the cap M, the current cap M, and remember that this changes. The numbers change from day to day, month to month, and all that. But right now, the market premium over risk free is five point eight two percent. In other words, you should, if you have a world portfolio. And taking the risk of that, you should earn 5.82% more than you would get from a T-bill. That's all it's saying. But there's something behind it. You see the beta 1.25? The beta is nothing but a magnifier. It magnifies or demagnifies the market premium. That's all it does. Remember when I said, well, a beta above one? is riskier than the market, a beta below one is safer than the market. That's what I was talking about, is the beta is nothing but the magnification or demagnification. So in this case, this portfolio has about 125% of the expected return of uh, market premium. It's all, that's all it says. It's a, in this case, it's magnifying. If I had a stock, a portfolio I'd formed, and I did the weighted average of the betas, and I got something like, a, let's say, a 0.8, well, that one is going to whip and give a return that is 80% of what the world does. That's all it does. That's all the beta does. And again, I can't emphasize it enough. This is actually not hard math. Now, I'm going to take that market premium times 1.25, Whoops, 1.25, and then I'm going to add the risk-free rate. Now, that risk-free rate adding on, that's just saying your portfolio has to earn at least risk-free if it doesn't earn any more than that, plus 
0.68. So I expect this portfolio to earn over the next year 11.96%. That's what this does. It's the mathematics of it. it and this is, you have to talk about diversified portfolios. It gets horrific because betas vastly underestimate the risk of, of portfolios that are not diversified. So we, that's why in the professional world, we don't play that game because we're in territory, we don't have math for it. It's just all fun and games. But there's another important point that I need to make here too. And we see this on talk shows all the time, these financial talk shows, but where it really, really galls professionals like me is when we have these contests where we say, these teams are going to make portfolios and whichever team gets the highest return wins scholarships or whatever. And we who are professionals say, are you out of your frickin' mind? All they have to do is just leverage themselves out to massive betas. Sure, that's how you do it. That doesn't tell anyone that you're a hero. You just took an extraordinary amount of risk and it paid off. So uh, the, when you see these fund managers, well, this one earned the greatest return last year. Isn't that incredible? What people were you, were your clients? Oh, you have older people. Are you on crack? Yes, you got that high return. You took insane risk to do it. Don't do that. Don't encourage that in the work that you do. Okay, uh, I can't emphasize that enough, is that... <coughs> In our world, we can do all of these things where we are amazed by people who achieve things, but we ask, at what risk did you do this? And what were the consequences? What were the prices? Risk is a cost. And people seem to think, well, I made it, so it was all okay. No, you were not including all the risks that were involved in doing that. I'm going to show you something else, and, then I'm, and I'm going to be a little weird and go back to the world of physics again. Now remember, this capital market, our security, see, I even do it. Securities market line here. It's, it's constantly kind of in motion. As the risk-free rate goes up, it swings, and as the expected return to the market portfolio moves around, the thing swings back and forth. So you have to appreciate that it is kind of like a fuzzy line. It's sort of like in economics where they say, well, the equilibrium price is, in the real world, the equilibrium price, especially on commodities like grain and corn and oil, that equilibrium price is like a vibration. Now I want to take you on another little journey here. And it just really weird you out by integrating another physics uh, story into something about the securities market line. In the world of high energy physics, in the tiny, tiniest places in the universe, quantum level, we see things that happen for only a very short amount of time. And then they just go away. One of these are called quasi-particles. They don't really exist, except that they do, and then they vanish. The same thing in art, well, or if you look in nature, crows flying up overhead, blackbirds. Every now and then they'll swirl into these beautiful patterns and then it'll disappear. Well, we have something like that that happens in securities. And uh, 
You see, you take a risk position in your portfolio, a beta. Now, let's say we took a, a, a portfolio position, let's say 1.2, 1.20, okay? You're a little bit of a risk taker. Now, that should earn you, by the capital asset pricing model, it should earn you this expected return up here. Once in a while, we see some, a portfolio with a beta that is a little bit above or below the line. Now, we, we have to check to make sure that it's just actually not just a riskier portfolio or a less risky portfolio. But we're pretty sure, we know, we see this every now and then. The cap M will tell us, uh, here, the cap M for this 1.25, uh, this portfolio that had a beta of 1.25, the cap M, what the hell? Oh, says that it should have uh, a uh, value of 11.96%. That's what it should return. But once in a while, we'll see a portfolio with a, we, we're sure that the beta is what it says it is, that might earn, let's say, 12.04%. Or it might earn 11.89%. It doesn't earn what the theory, theoretical value is. Was the theory wrong? Well, good luck with that. But these are like those virtual particles I was telling you about. Now, this distance here, if I take the 12.04, the actual return, minus what CAPM says it should have been, 11.96%, or in this case, 11.89 minus 11.96%. In this case, I get 0.08%. In this case, I get uh, negative 0.07%. These are called, these differences between the real and what CAPM says, we call those Jensen's alpha. Jensen's alphas. They, now, we know that they happen. We see them happen. They're not that common. And usually, if you've got a trader who's got a positive Jensen's alpha on a portfolio, it will disappear pretty quickly because other traders will see what's going on and then they'll start buying that portfolio, driving its price up and evaporating the unusual return. But out the alphas, as a matter of fact, one of the most reputable investment sites on the internet has the name Seeking Alpha. It, it, uh, it's very, very professional people. And what I love about them is for years when I had a question, uh, uh, these are industry people in all kinds. I had one about two years ago about the oil, uh, oil futures, and I asked it in the comment section, and the author of the article came in within like uh, 24 hours and explained it to me. So Jensen's Alpha is out there, and uh, Seeking Alpha helps you seek alpha. 
ideally positive alphas, but you know, there's that part of it too. But the alpha, here's the thing though, is a, a caution to you. Now, a lot of folks these days, and I do this too, we go with these trading services like TDS Amer TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, Robinhood, Ninja Trader, whatever. You be cautious. Well, it's free. I can buy stocks, sell stocks, free all the time. Well, guess what? They're collecting data. They're seeking alphas. They're looking for the trader that has magic. It's part of how we do it. Is that, and now it's technically illegal, but you know, laws, you know, whatever. So in other words, if you, I see that you've got a Jensen's Alpha and it has stayed positive for long enough. When you put in a trade, I'd like to buy this to me, we're going to front run you and we're going to buy that before we buy your, we fill your order because you have magic. So I'm going to take some of your magic away from you because by the time your trade goes through, the price will go up because my big trade went through. That's one of the things you have to watch for. It's called front running, it's illegal, and yes, it's done. That's why one of the reasons they give you free services is because you're their data pool and they're always seeking alphas. And there are other things. It's the same thing that happens, I took my students uh, more than a few years ago up to the White Sox. And, uh, and, they, and their finance people just talked to us, helped us out, and they were telling us about, this was particularly their charity, charitable organization. They fund huge numbers of Little League teams every summer all through Chicagoland. And they do it with their own money. It's charity. Really? Think. Why are they doing this? Come on. They're seeking alpha. You get 10,000 kids, you're going to find a couple who have something about the way they throw the ball, they swing the bat, and that makes it worth it to be charitable to everybody. Just like it's worth it to give free, no commission trading to everybody just so they can find the alphas. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.